Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are moving into our second group of New Testament manuscripts, the unseals. However, before describing them, we'll need to focus on how Christian scribes went about their work. As it turns out, the situation is quite different than the Jewish scribes who preserved the Hebrew Bible. Then, after this, we'll follow the exciting career of Bible hunter Constantine Tischendorf as he brought to light two huge discoveries. Lastly, we'll take a brief survey of the five most famous unsealed New Testament manuscripts, including Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Rescriptus, and Beze. Here now is episode 336, part 7 of our Bible class, Greek New Testament Unseals. Last time we began our focus on the New Testament, and we looked at the earliest Greek manuscripts, the papyri. And I told you stories of discovery by Chester Beatty, Moton Bodmer, Grenfell and Hunt at Oxyrhynchus, and really the exciting work that was done primarily in the 20th century. Today, however, we're going to look at the manuscripts that are made from a different material, parchment. So last time we talked about the papyrus reed and how they made it and how these manuscripts lasted so long in Egypt. But this time we're looking at parchments, which is actually a much larger collection of manuscripts for the New Testament. Here's what Bruce Mesker said about parchments. Parchment had a marked advantage over papyrus in its greater durability. Moreover, it was better suited than papyrus for writing on both sides. It was at about the start of the 4th century AD that it began to take the place of papyrus in the manufacture of the best books, and the works considered worth preserving were gradually transferred from papyrus roll to parchment codex. So our goal for today is to work through these three main points. One, I want to look at parchment with you. What is parchment? How is it made? How does it relate to Greek manuscripts? Two, I want to look at scribal practices, and this is going to continue on some of the things we shared about we looked at last time. And then three, and this is really our biggest point, is unsealed manuscripts. These are manuscripts written in capital letters on parchment. Uh, it's kind of weird to think about, but parchment is skin. Uh, not human skin, thankfully, but uh, animal skin. So it comes from cattle, sheep, goats, antelopes. First of all, you've got to skin an animal. Then you soak the skin in a vat of lime and water for a week. Then you drape it over a wooden shield and scrape all the hair off with a curved knife. Then you stretch the skin using a special frame. After it is scraped, you scrape it again to make it thin while it's still wet. And you dry it and scrape it again. So it's like constantly scraping while it's wet, while it's in the process of drying, after it's dried. And the more you scrape the skin, and they have these special tools like a curved knife with a handle in the middle of it, and that's, you know, you see it in uh, pictures and, and drawings of parchmenters from the Middle Ages. This really is the mark of the quality of the parchment because this is going to be paper. It needs to be really thin so that you could have multiple pages in a book, or the ancient equivalent of a book is just called a codex. Uh, the more scraping, the thinner, the finer, the more valuable, the more you can sell your parchment for. Then it needs to be buffed and cut to a re rectangular shape and then rolled up 
on a roller if it's a scroll or made into a book form if it's a codex. And then last of all, the scribe would uh, mix up the ink and write on the parchment. Scrolls had limitations, and much of what we've seen so far relates to scrolls, especially when it comes to the Hebrew Bible. The word volume comes from the Latin volvere, which means to roll. And so you read a scroll by rolling it out from the spindle. There are some limitations to scrolls. First of all, the size of the scroll. You really don't see scrolls over 35 feet long. That's about as big as they make them. When you get to the end of the scroll, or whatever it is you happen to be doing, once you're finished with it, you have to be kind to rewind. You know, rewind the scroll all the way back to the beginning so that the next person can find whatever they need to find and not be stuck in the middle. Let's say you have a book called Eusebius's Church History. So here's, here's an example of an ancient book right here. Eusebius is a Christian who wrote in the fourth century, is a historian. And so this book that I hold in my hand has books in it. And that's pretty standard. It looks like it's got nine books, ten books in it. Yeah, ten books in this. Why is it that ancient literature has books? You know, like modern literature, we have a book and then inside of it are chapters. Or think of the New Testament, for example. The New Testament has 27 books. Why does it say books? Well, it's because of the limitation of scrolls. You can only fit so much on a scroll, and that volume would be a book. So for long works of antiquity, you'd have, like Plato's Republic, you have book one, book two, book three, and those correspond to the scrolls. Uh, we have this in the Bible, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Well, you can only fit so much on a scroll, so then you have a new scroll for 2 Kings. The Codex, when it came along, it revolutionized books really just changed everything. And so this is where you take a large sheet of papyrus or parchment and you fold it into choirs. And you could fold that into four sections or eight sections. Then you sew those together, those choirs, and you bind them. And so you can see on old books, you look at the spine, you can see that there are these choirs that are sewn together, if it's a high quality book, or most of our books today, glued together so that um, it functions like a book is that we're accustomed to. Of course, today, uh, we've moved beyond the scroll and beyond the codex to the e-reader. We're reading on our phones and our tablets and our computers, and it's just like a matter of touching just the right part, and boom, we're right there. So. Uh, we have a lot to be thankful for today, but as it turns out, Christians were either the inventors or the very earliest adopters of the Codex invention. The whole idea of making a book form over a scroll dominated Christianity. So from at least the second century, Christians used codices. They're easier to use, easier to find a text. I mean, you could just flip through scripture and find a chapter, find a verse. Let's say you're trying to do some doctrinal investigation and you're curious about a subject. You can look at different verses from different sections of the Bible, all contained in one book. And so early versions could not just fit one gospel, like a scroll. Like for example, Luke and Acts. Luke is about the length of one scroll. There's no way Acts could have fit on the same scroll as Luke. So you have Luke, and then you have Acts, volume one, volume two. Well, in the, in the era of codices, now you could have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 
on one, in one codex. And you could have all Paul's epistles in one codex. And then over time, as the technology developed, you could have the whole New Testament. And then until where we are today, where you could have, in fact, the entire Bible bound together in one book. It's just, I know this is like, books today are, are almost like looked down upon as primitive because we have you know, electronic ways to do it. But this was a big deal. And this really changed the world. So when it comes to scribes, when they would write on these codices, they wanted to save space. And so they used what we call scriptio continua, which means continuous writing. So there's no word separators. Second point I want to make, and this is just, again, a normal practice of Christian scribes called the nomina sacra. Translation, sacred names. This term is a little misleading because scribes didn't just do this for sacred names. They did it for a whole bunch of other words as well. Theos for God and Kyrios for Lord and Jesus for Jesus and so on. Those we would expect to be sacred names, right? But then when we get further down the list, we see that uh, not just Son and Spirit, but the name David is considered a sacred name. And uh, the, the word cross, stavros, cross, is a sacred name. And the word for mother is a sacred name. And Israel is a sacred name. And just like the word human being, anthropos, is a sacred name. And so it is with Jerusalem and Savior and heaven. So we have all these different sacred names, quote-unquote. They're words that the scribes abbreviated. So how they would abbreviate it is they would take either just the first letter and the last letter, and they put them in the, in the codex, and they put a bar on top to tell us, hey, this is an abbreviation. In Greek, there's never a time to put a bar on top of an entire word. It's just not a move you do. So it's very attention-grabbing when you see it. You're reading through, and all of a sudden, you see, uh, instead of Jesus, it just says like J-S, using an English equivalent here, and then a bar on the top. Well, J-S is not a word. Everybody knows that. Uh, and seeing the bar really calls your attention to it. And this was a way, once again, to save space because, look, these things are, we're talking about the skins of animals. We're talking about processed leather. We're talking about incredibly expensive materials where you want to save as much space as possible. So you have a lot of these abbreviations going on. Uh, I just did want to also point out that the way I say my Greek might be different than you if you've learned your Greek in a college. Um, the way I say my Greek is the way Greek people say Greek, as opposed to the way that it's taught in many colleges, at least in America and Germany, certainly, which is very influenced by a Christian by the name of Erasmus, who determined a certain way of saying Greek. But uh, I say it the way Greek people say it, uh, so if that sounds weird to you, please forgive me for that. Uh, it's just the way I learned it. I'm not trying to be difficult here. These are just some examples of Nomina Sacra. And this is, again, if you're going to ever do any business with manuscripts and stuff, you really have to be aware of it because this is totally standard. However, in our Greek uh, text that we have today that scholars reconstruct, we're going to talk about that later, they never use Nomina Sacra. They always spell everything out. So when you first see it in a manuscript, it really does grab your attention. The emphasis for Christian scribes was never on preservation. We saw that with Jewish scribes, the Masoretes, master preservers from the year 500 to the year 1000, just developed these incredible ways of calculating all the letters and, and guaranteeing that there were no mistakes, right? That's not the Christian scribe. The Christian scribe is motivated by evangelism, not by preservation. 
They're not thinking, oh, well, we better preserve this. I'm talking about the early scribes, 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, this period here. They're not thinking, oh, we better preserve this. They're thinking, how do we get this out? There's a new church that just started over in Thessalonica. They're going to need, they're going to need a copy of the Gospels. How do we get this out? Well, um, my friend over here, he has, he has some papyrus. And this guy over here, he, you know, he's not really that literate, but he, he's got great penmanship. And the church would figure these things out, and they would get manuscripts reproduced and sent out as fast as possible. And so we look at this really in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the very first line of the gospel of Mark. A gospel is an evangelistic proclamation. Evangelism is in the minds of the, certainly the, the gospel writers. Or in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, we get this beautiful purpose statement where John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We don't have to guess what John was doing. He tells us very clearly, I wrote this to convince you to believe in Jesus. That's your motivation. That's their motivation for writing it, and then when the scribes come along, that's their motivation, at least early on, for getting copies done and early translations. We're going to look at that next time. Now, sometimes copies would be made in a scriptorium. A scriptorium is just a room for copying scriptures. And you, you would have a group of scribes seated at their stations, each with parchment and ink, and then you'd have a lector, someone reading very slowly from a document, and then the others in the room writing it down very neatly, very professionally. And then you would have a corrector, because there are lots of mistakes you can make in hearing, especially spelling mistakes, and that person would go through and make corrections in the manuscripts to make a final product. And we can tell because you can actually see the corrections that are made in these manuscripts. In fact, our most famous manuscripts we're going to look at in just a little bit of this period of the unseals in particular, uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, we can see the hand of the correctors. And there are multiple correctors at different time periods. How do we tell what's a corrector? Different kind of ink, different kind of handwriting. It's pretty easy to spot if you're, you have a trained eye in these sorts of things. Now, after the empire crumbled in the West, monks carried on the work. So early on, it was much more missionary-minded. And then uh, from Constantine, for the next uh, couple hundred years, it's more sponsored by the state, where the state already has professional scribes. They don't need, they don't need them to even be Christian, necessarily. Uh, I think probably they would be many times, but uh, they had their own scribes that they could use. But then later on, it becomes the duty and one of the chief responsibilities in the Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages in particular, for the monks to copy scripture. And that's really where we get the nice manuscripts, the really fancy stuff. We're going to look at those next time. Uh, and they get embellished with flourishes like drop caps and you get artwork. And some of the more exotic ones will be dyed purple and have gold and ink. You know, and so we'll see some of these really uh, beautiful manuscripts subsequently. Which brings me to the next issue, which is the whole subject of palimpsest. And this is obviously an unusual word, but uh, this is what Metzger says about it. In times of economic depression, when the cost of vellum increased, the parchment of an older manuscript 
would be used over again. The original writing was scraped and washed off, the surface re-smoothed, and the new literary material written on the salvaged material. Such a book was called a palimpsest, which means re-scraped from pollen and psao. This is a manuscript that has been written over another manuscript and generally speaking what we're interested in is the ancient one that was underneath. We're not so much interested in what's written on top. We want to see what was written underneath. So this brings us finally to Lobogat Friedrich Constantin von Tischendorf. In 1839 he dedicated himself to recovering the New Testament and this is his mission in his own words. This is an autobiographical statement by the man himself. I resolved in 1839, said Tischendorf, to devote myself to the textual study of the New Testament and attempted by making use of all the acquisitions of the last three centuries to reconstruct, if possible, the exact text as it came from the pen of the sacred writers. So that's what he's interested in. He wants to know the exact text for the New Testament. My first critical edition of the New Testament appeared in the autumn of 1840. But after giving this edition a final revision, I resolved to give my leisure and abilities to a fresh examination of the original documents. For the accomplishment of this protracted and difficult enterprise, it was needful not only to undertake distant journeys, to devote much time, and to bring to the task both ability and zeal, but also to provide a large sum of money. He dedicated his life to discovering and then making available as many ancient Greek manuscripts as possible so that he can get to the exact writings of the original New Testament. And uh, he really did a great job. From 1840 to 1843, he went to Paris. As I mentioned, he was at the University of Leipzig. He graduated and then he became a teacher there. And now he's over at the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is the main museum in Paris uh, for manuscripts. He's over there pouring over manuscripts for three years and he encountered Codex Ephraimi Siri Rescriptus. And uh, this codex comes from the 5th century, but it had been erased. It had been washed and written over in the 12th century with 38 sermons by Ephraim the Syrian. So this is really a challenge for Tischendorf. So what he did was he applied some chemical reagents to the manuscript to help that bottom text to become a little bit easier to read and then he very slowly and very carefully worked his way through that manuscript until he could really get to be able to read it. Quote, by application of chemical reagents and painstaking labor, Tischendorf was able to decipher the almost totally obliterated underwriting of this palimpsest. That was uh, Bruce M. Metzger. It must have been uh, just a staggering amount of work to carefully painstakingly transcribe. Oh, is that, what letter is that? Is that an O? Is that a T? Uh, maybe it's an A. The wear on your eye. I mean, hundreds of these pages, you just very carefully, meticulously, with a real keen sense of accuracy, he is going through this and he does it. He does it. He transcribes the majority of this Ephraimi Rescriptus, which is what is known to, known to us today, and He's able to recover about 60% of the New Testament original and 
he found that every book of the New Testament was represented in this manuscript, 5th century manuscript, which is very, very old, uh, for, except for uh, 2 Thessalonians and 2 John. So uh, just did a great job with that. And when he, when he published his results, the scholarly world was very impressed. And uh, it helped to, in a sense, make him famous for having done this and get funding. Because all scholars need funding or else they can't do their research. And so he gets funding, and that helps him to finance later expeditions. So, as I mentioned, from 1840 to 43, he's in the Library of Paris. He's working on a Frimary Scriptus, and he's deciphering it. He's also doing other work for other people that need stuff done. And then in 1843, he leaves Paris, and he goes on a, a tour of other libraries and other museums, especially in Italy. So he goes to Florence and Venice and Modena and Milan and Verona and Turin. And then in 1844, he says, you know what, I'm going to Egypt. Uh, see, what, see what they have, what manuscripts they have. And he, he's just searching everywhere. Where are the oldest New Testament manuscripts? How can I find them? How can I collate them? How can I publish them and make them available? He, he's really uh, just dedicated his life to this. So 1844, he goes to Egypt and Libya and he visits the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And here you have this fortified little village in the middle of nowhere, St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai. And he notices some waste baskets with old paper in them that the monks are using to start fires. And he picks one of those old papers up and he looks at it and he's like, wow, this looks like a really, really ancient Greek manuscript of the Old Testament, what we call today the Septuagint. And so he's able to determine, like, wow, these are really ancient Greek manuscripts. And they're just burning them. This is crazy. So he talks to the people in charge, and he says, can I have manuscripts? And he rescues 43 of these manuscripts of the Septuagint. And then in 1853, so this is quite a while later, he revisits the monastery, hoping to find more of that same book that they were basically getting rid of. But this time, they got suspicious of him. Like, why are you back here? Why are you so gung-ho? Are you trying to say that something we have is valuable? So uh, they basically turn him away and, and don't give him anything. And so his 1853 trip is a bust. He returns empty-handed. But he has not given up. And then in 1859, Tischendorf visits a third time under the patronage of the Tsar of Russia, Alexander II. This gives Tischendorf a little bit more authority and recognition than he would have had otherwise. And so he's, he's looking through things and he, he's not really able to find much. And the, the day before he's about to leave, a monk says to him, come in my cell. I want to you're the guy that's interested in the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament. Tischendorf says, yeah. So come in my cell, I want to show you something. And he goes in his cell and he takes out from a closet a large uh, book wrapped in uh, red cloth. And he opens it and shows it to Tischendorf. And there before his eyes is not just a Septuagint, not just an old Greek translation of the Old Testament, but a complete Greek New Testament in phenomenal condition. So Tischendorf realizes this thing is, this thing's priceless. Like, this, this, is, this is the greatest discovery of my life. And he is very careful according to the account that I read from uh, Metzger, he's very careful to conceal his excitement because he doesn't want to tip anybody off that this thing is super valuable, right? He doesn't want them to clench down on it. And he says, can I borrow it for the night? So he stays up all night in his cell and he's studying it and he, he allegedly said, 
um, that it would have been a sacrilege for him to sleep, having something so precious before him. I mean, this is the oldest complete New Testament on the planet. So he asks to borrow it. They say to him, nah, I don't think so. They reject him again. So then he goes back to Cairo, and while he's, in a, while he's at Cairo, he runs into the abbot of the monastery, who also has a monastery in Cairo. And he's talking to him, and he, and he says, you know, it would be really great if I could borrow this. I just want to copy it by hand. I just want to copy it by hand. And so uh, the abbot actually gives him approval, and they send these Bedouin messengers down from Cairo all the way over to uh, St. Catherine's at the base of the traditional location of Mount Sinai. And uh, they bring it back, and there's Tischendorf. And he grabs a couple of guys that happen to know a little bit of Greek, and he says, we got to copy this. This is our responsibility. And they transcribe 110,000 lines in two months of Greek text. And uh, then Tischendorf hatches this plan, and he says, you know, we got to get this, we got to get this out of the, of the country. We got to get it to be available to scholars. So he suggests to the abbot, he says, you should give this this codex, this ancient Bible, you should give this as a gift to the Tsar of Russia. We're coming up to the 1,000th anniversary, and this, this would really be a good gift. The way gifts work in their culture is there's reciprocity. So if you give the Tsar something really great, the protector of your organization, your denomination, then he's going to give you something really great. This is, in fact, how Constantine Tischendorf convinced the abbot to to proceed, and the abbot agreed to give it. Now, there are some scholars that dispute this and, and painted it in a different light, but I'm just giving you the basic version of this. And uh, so the Tsar gave a silver shrine to St. Catherine's Monastery and 7,000 rubles for the library, another 2,000 for the monks at Cairo, and several Russian honorary degrees. And in 1862, Tischendorf succeeded in publishing at Leipzig uh, four volumes of Codex Sinaiticus after three years of meticulous, painstaking work. And, you know, in the 1800s, you're not talking about a desktop computer. You're not talking about any computers, right? So what, how, does, how does publishing work? Well, you have to, you have to create a, what we would call a font, and you have to set the type, and there are these different scribes who wrote this manuscript. So... Tischendorf is so meticulous, he wants a different set of, he wants a different font for each of those different scribes. Even though they're very similar, he, he wants to show the difference. He wants it to be as an exact a book as possible. And so that's what he does. He produces this four-volume book, real masterpiece. And uh, this is a little bit about Tischendorf's motivation, why I like this guy so much, is uh, evidence from this quote here. And this is, once again, Tischendorf in his own words. But that which I think more highly of than all these flattering distinctions. More than all that is the fact that providence has given to our age, in which attacks on Christianity are so common, the Sinaitic Bible, to be to us a full and clear light as to what the real text of God's Word written, and to assist us in defending the truth by establishing its authentic form. That's what Tischendorf was doing. He was traipsing around the world, and he finally found, like you imagine, you just dedicate your whole life to this, and then you find the best manuscript that's out there to be found, at least that we know of, at that time as far as the completeness of the New Testament. A uh, little after story on this. So after Russia became the USSR, 
the British Museum was very clever and they offered to buy Konex Sidekis from the Russians since USSR didn't really care much about religious texts, but they really did need money. <laughs> so uh, the British Museum ended up buying it for about 100,000 pounds, which is roughly equivalent to $9 million uh, in our day. Uh, and they brought it to the British Museum just before Christmas 1933. So Sinaiticus remained there in Petersburg and then eventually now today is at the British Museum. You can see it's four columns per page. It's all capital Greek letters. It's the only known complete Greek New Testament in Majuscule script. Majuscule is capital letters. It dates to about the year 350 and it's indicated in scholarly literature by the Hebrew letter Aleph because they already had started labeling manuscripts A, B, C, D, and they just went along in the alphabet. And then Tischendorf found this and he said, oh man, this is even better than A. So he's like, well, I'll just use another alphabet. And he took the, he the Hebrew equivalent of the letter A is an Aleph. It almost looks like an X. And uh, that's the, the abbreviation for Sinaiticus today. Here is Philip Comfort's assessment of Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Sinaiticus provides a fairly reliable witness to the New Testament. However, the scribe was not as careful as the scribe of B. I'm going to show you B in a minute. He was more prone to error and to creative emendation. The scribe of Aleph displayed his creativity not only in Revelation, but also in John, especially in the first eight chapters. So Philip Comfort is somebody from the 21st century looking back on Tischendorf's discovery, which Tischendorf was convinced was like the best and most accurate New Testament ever made. Well, over time we came to see that there were other manuscripts that had more accuracy in certain areas than Sinaiticus. So I don't want to give you the impression that Sinaiticus is just the one true Bible. It's more complicated than that, and we're going to look at how this all works in a little bit here. So you have Codex Sinaiticus, and unseals are, once again, capital letter only Greek manuscripts written on parchment. They have a letter, but then they have a number that starts with zero. So it's, this is not one, this is zero one. This is zero two, Codex Alexandrinus, zero three, Codex Vaticanus, zero four, Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, and zero five, Codex Beze. So these are our five main Greek unseal manuscripts of the New Testament. I've already talked to you about Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. These are both ones that Tischendorf worked on. Let's take a look at Vaticanus ever so quickly as we wrap things up here. So here is Codex Vaticanus, another very cool looking manuscript here. It's stored at the Vatican. It was written around the year AD 350, maybe slightly earlier than Sinaiticus, but it's not a complete Bible. It's missing some parts. Uh, it contains most of the Old Testament, most of the New Testament, and the Apocrypha, except for 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Let's take a look at Codex Alexandrinus. Here is Codex Alexandrinus from the 5th century. It's got the Old Testament and the New Testament, except for some parts in Matthew, John, and 2nd Corinthians. In 1627, the Patriarch of Constantinople gave this manuscript to the King of England. So now it's at the British Museum right next to Codex Sinaiticus. Next we have Codex Beze. In 1581, Theodore Beze donated it to Cambridge University. He was a French scholar who had succeeded John Calvin as the leader in Geneva, Switzerland. And this manuscript became available in 1864, and it dates to the fifth century. It has most of the Gospels and Acts in it, and a small fragment of Third John. 
Bruce Mesker says about it, no known manuscript has so many and such remarkable variations from what is usually taken to be the normal New Testament text. That's not a compliment, ladies and gentlemen. Codex Beze's special characteristic is the free addition and occasional omission of words, sentences, and even incidents. Let's summarize a little bit. We've looked at Codex Sinaiticus, we've looked at Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Ephraimeter Scriptus, and Beze, and uh, really the top one out of this grouping here is going to be Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, followed very closely by Alexandrinus and Ephraimeter Scriptus with D um, being in the last position as far as accuracy. The terminology here in this class is a little strange, especially in this session here, a lot of unusual words, uh, but this is the Bible. This is where we get the Bible from. And uh, next time we're going to take a look at the rest of the manuscripts from which we get our New Testaments in our effort, our continuing effort, to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this lecture. I just wanted to let you know we do have some references and links for you in the show notes for this episode, including a selection of books related to this topic, as well as links to other classes that you may be interested in. If you have any questions or would like to leave a comment, come on to restitudio.org and find episode 336, Greek New Testament Unseals, and leave a comment there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. That's it for this week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.